Well, actually, I want to uh, start off, before we get started in the message, take care of a little family business, if you don't mind. I'm going to invite Justin and Courtney McCarty to come on up. Um, three weeks ago, Justin came to me and told me that he believed that God was leading him off our staff and into the marketplace, still committed to uh, what we're about um, and, and the mission we're about, but I was kind of bummed. I, in fact, I was really bummed, but I wanted him to have a chance to uh, tell you himself, and uh, then I wanted to pray for him. Thank you. Uh, hey, y'all, I'm... Uh... By the way, if we haven't met before, I'm Justin. This is my wife, Courtney. And while I know that what you're hearing is unexpected to many of you, it's a surprise. It was kind of a surprise to us. And I'd love to share with you just a a little snapshot of the process that really went into that. But first, I'd love to tell you what it's not. Uh, What you're not hearing is some cover-up of a relationship gone sour, and I'm just trying to get out as fast as possible. It's nothing like that, okay? There's no uh, weird story behind the scenes. There's no broken relationship. I have the utmost respect for John and Rob and for the entire team. This has really been about something personal uh, that God has been uh, leading me and really us on. Uh, About six months ago, uh, there began to be these stirrings in my heart about living out the mission that we talk about here, that we've dedicated ourselves to Gateway, about really living that out. But the the way that it was coming to my heart, it felt really incompatible with my role as a uh, a church staff member, as a campus pastor. And that was really weird, but I kind of, you know, sort of pushed it off and like, okay, Court, here's what's happening, but let's just kind of pray about this. That went on for months. It would kind of come back and come, go away and come back. And then in February, sort of hit like this new level where it really forced us to go, okay, God, what are you, what are you saying to us here? So we really pressed in with uh, prayer and fasting, which we've talked about here, like kind of seeking God in a, in a set-apart, focused way. And during that time, it was really undeniable. Like I've got, in the best way we know how, God really spoke to our heart and made it clear that this chapter here at Gateway is ending, but there... There really is a whole new season up in front of us that is very much living out the same heartbeat and mission that we have loved living alongside you. So I know that that's really surprising to you because it was really surprising to us too. The season that we've been here at Gateway is far shorter than we would have expected. But at the same time, it's also been really undeniable that God really seems to be moving us forward. Now, all that to say, uh, we don't feel a draw to leave the Austin area. We still plan to be here and be around. In fact, uh, our hope is to still continue to be a part of the Gateway community and kind of live out this mission alongside you. Uh, But we really wanted you to hear that uh, from uh, us directly and just know that we are so grateful for you. We've been so thankful uh, for this season where God has allowed us to be on staff here at this church, and we really are... uh, immensely grateful for the ways you've kind of led us into your hearts and lives and to partner with you. But in the end, I know that you've looked to me as a campus pastor to go, that guy better be following Jesus. Like that's what he's there to do, right? That's his whole job. And uh, that's really what I feel like I'm doing now. So sorry for the surprise of it, but we really wanted you to know that uh, from us directly. Well, and I was, uh, I was bummed, I will admit. Uh, and, and I did my best to talk him out of it. And you know, I know he, he's feeling called into the marketplace in this season, and I can totally bless that. But man, uh, Justin uh, and Courtney both have been such a blessing uh, to all of us. And so um, we're going to have a, just a thank you. They're not going anywhere. He's still going to be around uh, here through April, but also hopefully be, continue to be a part of Gateway. But we'll have a thank you over in the garage in a couple of weeks um, after the second service. But I would like to just pray for them, so... God, I do thank you uh, for Justin and Courtney being here the last uh, year and a half, and um, 
I, I wish in this capacity it would be longer because they have been such a blessing uh, to us in this capacity. But Lord, um, even as we're talking about today, I trust you um, with their future. I know they are trusting you with their future. I trust you with the future of Gateway and um, the right campus pastor and all these things, God. I know that you've got the future in your hands. And I pray, we pray for your blessing on um, the McCarty family. And as you're leading them into the marketplace right now, that you would uh, just go ahead of them and that you would provide and protect uh, their family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you. So I, uh, I, I did when Justin told me three weeks ago, I said, all right, well, you've fasted and prayed, but I haven't. Give me a week. <laughs> and I did. And I fasted and I prayed and I was asking God for clarity. And um, God didn't give me the clarity I wanted because the clarity I wanted was to change Justin's mind. <laughs> uh, he didn't do that, but he did give me clarity that I am called to this mission and that what we are doing is so important. And especially right now that, uh, you know, we're doing what Jesus commanded. And I'm going to keep trying to inspire you to love your neighbors. You know, to love and serve and bless the 20 neighbors and coworkers around you. And I'm going to keep pressing us forward to launch 20 new networks to go out and engage and serve our neighbors and, and, and people in need all over the city of Austin and start these two new campuses and, and grow together in, in life groups because I believe that's exactly what Jesus was doing. It's challenging, yes, and uh, this is a challenge, but as we're talking about today, um, it was very interesting that I was preparing to speak on Daniel about how God knows the future, even as he's making me trust him in an area where I don't know the future. So let's talk about that today, because I think most people don't trust God, mainly for one reason. I know the plans I have for me, and I want no one, including God, to mess them up, <laughs> right? And I think that is our biggest challenge and our biggest struggle. But I want you to think about something today. If God is love and he created you for a relationship where he says he wants to lead you into love and joy and peace and all these good things. In fact, Jesus said, God knows how to give good gifts to you far better than you know how to give good gifts to your kids. If that's true, why wouldn't you trust God with your whole future? Because he alone knows the future. And we've been talking about that. Uh, I want to just say, you know, I have studied the world's religions, and it's fascinating. There is no other religious text where there is a God who claims to be speaking to all the nations, who cares about all the nations, and who says, and I'm going to do things in verifiable history that I'll tell you in advance, and that's how you'll know I'm God. And I've been showing you how God has demonstrated that in verifiable uh, evidence that you can see verifiable uh, history. And Daniel, more than any other prophet, shows this, that God knows the future of kings and nations, and therefore he knows your future too, and you can trust him with it. So going back, if you haven't been here, go back and listen to the last couple messages, but just quick summary. 2,000 years ago, God creates the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, to bless all nations, he says, and in two particular ways, to write and preserve his word through the prophets and the scriptures, and second, to reveal 
his Messiah in order to bless all the nations. And in about 1,000 BC, this is happening in a huge way. But then several hundred years later, I mean, the, the nation of Israel is blessed beyond imagination. Solomon's the wisest and the wealthiest of all people. But as often happens, when they're doing well, they turn from God. And they go more and more into all kinds of evil ways, even killing, sacrificing their children. And for centuries, God cries out, don't do this. Now, you know, if you read the Old Testament, sometimes you feel like, gosh, God's angry all the time, right? Well, here's what's actually happening. God is so loving and so patient for hundreds of years, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet giving warning. Don't keep going this way. Turn back to me because if you keep going this way, here's what it's going to look like. I don't want that for you. I want this. I will forgive. I will take you back. Just turn back. And yet, hundreds and hundreds of years, they keep going their own way. So Daniel is a Jewish teenager when in 587, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, comes, destroys the Jewish temple and Jerusalem, and takes uh, all of the Israelites into captivity. And so the book of Daniel is actually written from Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, um, who was the last prophet before this deportation. Um, he's called the weeping prophet because God is trying one last 23-year time to say, look, just don't keep hardening your heart. I'll take you back. This doesn't have to happen, but they keep hardening their heart. And even as they're going into captivity in Babylon, God says this through Jeremiah, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, Babylon, to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. You'll seek me and find you. Me, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. And God tells him, 70 years you'll be in Babylon. Seek the prosperity of Babylon. That's the first question I want to ask you today. Do you trust God with your work future? Do you trust God with your work future? Because you know, God wants us to bless wherever we're planted, to bless the company that we're in, whatever we're about. And so Daniel and his, his three friends are deported into Babylon as teenagers. And they're smart, they're strong, and they're hotter than Chris Hemsworth. And Nebuchadnezzar kind of takes note. And, and he wants the best and the brightest, and so he inducts them into his leadership development program. It's kind of like the leadership development program that Rob uh, runs here at Gateway, except Rob doesn't require you to be castrated to get into it. Nebuchadnezzar did. Apparently, he didn't want any... Chris Hemsworth lookalikes near his harem with any ideas. So they go into this, this leadership development program, and, and Daniel knows he's to seek the prosperity of Babylon, but Babylon is this evil, corrupt society. So there are challenges from the start. Like Daniel follows a particular diet that God wants him to follow, and that's not on the menu plan for the interns. So what does he do? Um, since this violates his diet. That diet is now known as the Daniel plan, by the way. Many of us are on it. Apparently, God even knew the future of good diets. 
So Daniel had already decided he was going to trust God with his work, with his career future. And so he goes to his boss and he asks for a pass. Says now, God had caused the official, his boss, to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, my, the, uh, my Lord, the king, who has assigned you the food and drink. Which is a great little mini, mini study on faith in the workplace. You know, God wants you to work hard and bless wherever you're working. In fact, Christians should be the best employees ever. But what do you do when the company wants you to do things or everybody's doing things that are opposed to God's will? Then what? Well, Daniel models it. He respectfully asks permission, and then he deals with the real issue. The boss is afraid of the bigger boss, which, by the way, is almost always the real issue, right? And so he goes with a solution that's a win-win. It meets the boss's needs, but it allows him to follow God's will. And he says, test me and my friends on this Daniel plan diet for 10 days. And if we're not healthier than the other guys, then do with us what you want. And they're healthier after 10 days and God honors their obedience. And it says this in Daniel 1. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so God actually increases these guys' influence in Babylon. So let me ask you, do you trust God with your career? You know, or are you scared to live out your faith because, you know, it might hurt your career? So you compromise. You do things that you know are against God's will. But look... If God knows the future and his plans are to prosper you, not to harm you, for a future and a hope, why wouldn't you trust him with it? You know, I remember a pharmaceutical company manager came to me right after the service, right down here uh, a while back, and he said, you know, I've just been struggling because uh, the, the company wants me and my division to... Uh, push this drug that as I've been studying it more and more, it actually hurts people. And, and I, I can't do it. And the more I'm praying about it, the more I feel wrong about it. And he had decided he's going to go to his higher ups and appeal to the company's integrity, but he knew it could cost him his job. That's trusting God with your future career. Now, what do you do when everyone's fudging the numbers? What do you do when they're lying to customers or cooking the books and it seems like, well, I can't do my job unless I do the same, unless there's actually a God. Will you trust him and see and see what he does? So Daniel and his friends do and he, they gain influence actually, but that influence doesn't come without tests along the way. So Daniel gets tested again as Babylon prospers. Uh, his new boss has had success and he gets a big head. You ever seen that happen? Where your boss is having a lot of success and he gets a big head? Yeah, not like this big head. We're talking about 90-foot statue in the desert big head of Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells all his employees, unless you bow down and worship my statue, you're going to be fired. You're thinking, well, no, that sounds exactly like my boss. <laughs> Well, but in Babylon, fired mean, means literally fired, like fiery furnace fired, right? And, and uh, so Daniel and his friends have to decide, what are we going to do? 
but they'd already, already decided. They'd already decided we're going to follow God. And in the Ten Commandments, it says, worship Yahweh only. So they refused. And the king said, if you do not bow, if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are Daniel's friend's Persian names, replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. Our God is able, and we believe he will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him. And let me ask you, do you have an if-then faith or an even-if faith? You know, an if-then faith says, God, if, if I do this, then you have to do this. But if not, then I'm not following you. But see, that's playing God, isn't it? It's demanding of God. But an even-if faith says, God, I'm praying for this, and I believe you can and will do it, will deliver me. But even if you don't, if you have some bigger plan and you see something beyond it, I'm going to trust you because you alone know the future. God delivered them through the fire. Nebuchadnezzar realizes there's no God like Yahweh. Not only that, but God actually humbles him a couple years later, and Nebuchadnezzar turns to faith in Yahweh because of it. You know, when I worked in engineering, um, I went into it and I told God, you know, I want to be here to serve you first. Not my boss first, not me first, you first. And it wasn't long after that, I found myself tested because I had this thought come into my mind, why didn't you start a lunchtime spiritual discussion on the teachings of Jesus? And I thought, oh, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> I could get fired. They'll think I'm a crazy Christian. What? I, I don't know. And I resisted and resisted. And finally, I thought, I'm going to step out in faith. So I put a, you know, something up on the bulletin board, lunchtime, Bible, uh, lunchtime study of the teachings of Jesus. And, a, and I invited my coworkers to it. And a week later, the president of my division calls me into his office. And my knees are knocking as he's asking me, what are you doing? And I told him, well, you know, I, I've, I've been studying and living by the teachings of Jesus. And I think it's really helped me be a, a better employee and a better person. And I think it'll help others. So it's just a discussion. And he sat there staring at me. And then he goes, okay, I'll be there. And over the next two years, 24 of my coworkers were coming to that and started following Jesus. Val and, and her husband, Rob, uh, told me that they were, they were headed for divorce. They both found faith. They reconciled their marriage and still together today. Jeff Locast moved two years later to another uh, division up in San Francisco, and he started one there. And I got in con or Jeff contacted me last year and told me that began him on a road where he ended up in full-time ministry as well. Couldn't even imagine the life change ripple effect that would happen from that. And then when I went and resigned to go into full-time ministry, the president gave me a two-year leave of absence. I could come back full benefits anytime I wanted because God honors it when you honor him. Will you trust him with your work career? 
Well, so Daniel sees these dreams and these visions, and we don't have time to get into all of them. I wish we did. Chapter 7 and 8 and chapter 11 of Daniel, God gives Daniel this chronology of coming kings and kingdoms all the way from 500 B.C. to 165 B.C. And in fact, it's so right on with real history, critics have said Daniel had to have been written after 165 B.C. Why? Well, because no one knows the future except God. But they don't want to believe that. But here's the thing, and I could show you if we had time. Daniel, first of all, we found eight copies of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls, carbon dated from 125 BC, okay? And then uh, in Daniel, you have names of, of uh, different officials that date from 500s, but not from the 100s. In Persia, you have coinage that has the value from the 500s, not the 100s. I could explain it all, but just know there's no way. There's no way to say that this was written after 165. And even here in Daniel 7, and remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls prove positive, uh, predates uh, the book of Daniel before the coming of Jesus. And yet, Daniel in 7, he sees this vision of the Messiah. Look at this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. By the way, son of man was Jesus' favorite term for himself. Did you ever make the connection? Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, God, and led, was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Remember, this is not Christian. This is Jewish, and it's written 500 years before Jesus ever came. And remember, the creed of Judaism is there is only one God, worship God only. Yet here you have God giving this son of man his sovereignty, glory, and authority, and all nations will worship him. And by the way... I would just want to remind you there are 65 nations right here at Gateway who worship Jesus today. How did he know? Think, stop and think about that. How did Isaiah, how did Daniel know? Because God knew. And he is, he is overseeing all of history. You can trust him. So Daniel trusts God. He trusts him first to rebuild Jerusalem because he said he would. Daniel reads the prophet Jeremiah, Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, in that first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. So he's reading Jeremiah saying the desolation of Jerusalem would only last 70 years and that time was finished. So, Daniel says, I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I want to ask you a second. Do you trust God to rebuild a new future for you? Maybe in the past, your life was decimated. Maybe it was something you did and, and it, it wrecked ruin on your life. Or maybe it was something that others did. But will you trust him? He has a good future for you. Trust him to rebuild and start where Daniel did. He prays. He confesses his sins and, and the wrongs of his, his forefathers. And then he petitions God. Show us. Lead us into a new future. And God sends the angel Gabriel. Next time the angel Gabriel will show up will be to Mary announcing the birth of Jesus. 
And, and, and Gabriel tells the future of the Jewish people all the way up until the time of Messiah, the very time Messiah will come. And I want to go into this today because it confirms God's inspiration of the scriptures. And it just reminds us, no one deserves first place in our lives except God. Not our jobs, not our spouses, not even our children. God alone deserves first place because he alone knows why he created you and he knows what he created you for and he has a good future for you. So I want you to just think as I go through this, am I holding any area back from you, God? Or can I trust you with my whole future and have ears to hear what he's saying to you? So the very year of the Messiah's coming was foretold. Let's look at it. In Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel says, now listen, you, so you understand the meaning of your vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people, the Jewish people, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. All right, push pause a second. So the angel says, all right, here's what's going to happen. This is God's future for the Jewish people. Remember, God created the Jewish people to bless all nations and to be a sign to all nations that he's real. Now, it's kind of cryptic. He says, 77s have been decreed. Well, sevens of what? Well, here's where a good rule of thumb is context matters, all right? So consider the context. So if I go into Krispy Kreme and I say, give me a dozen, they're not going to give me a dozen Cokes, right? They're going to give me a dozen donuts because the context makes it obvious. Well, the context here is the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the consummation of all history. So years is probably a good assumption for what the sevens are. And plus, 70 years of Babylonian captivity had just been completed. So now God's saying there'll be 77s of years for God to accomplish his purposes through the Jewish people for all history. So let's look at them. So in, in 925, the angel continues, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to rebuild and to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Meshach, the anointed one, Messiah, or Christ in, in Greek, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It, Jerusalem, will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, Messiah, will be cut off, which katat literally means killed, and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city Jerusalem and the temple, the sanctuary. All right, try to follow this because this is incredible. God is going to give the exact time in which the Messiah is going to come. And if anyone doubts if Jesus was the Messiah, lead them right here to Daniel 9 or lead them to Isaiah 53 that we looked at last week. And let me just remind you again. So we know all this was written down in advance in 250 BC, 250 years before Jesus. The Egyptian king has a copy of the Hebrew Old Testament, including Daniel, translated into Greek and put in the uh, Library of Alexandria in Egypt. So it was translated before. Plus, we have carbon-dated copies of Daniel from the Dead Sea Scrolls dating 125 BC, before Jesus was ever born. And yet, let's look at what he says. Seventy-sevens of years are decreed for Daniel's people and Jerusalem to accomplish God's plan, okay? 
Second, the countdown starts with the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Third, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but in times of trouble. And this, by the way, is why the 77s are broken up into seven, and then 62, and then one. The first seven sevens is 49 years. That's how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem. And that's interesting because it should have taken probably five to 10 years. And yet uh, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra record how God had decreed that they were going to rebuild it. And yet they kept getting attacked. They kept having challenges. They kept having setbacks. And this is an important thing to remember because I hear people sometimes say, well, if God's in it, there shouldn't be any difficulty. There shouldn't be any challenges. Everything should just work. (laughs) Read the Bible. That's not the way God works. And many times he allows the challenges and even the setbacks, and we don't always understand the reason, but God decreed it, and yet still, it took 49 years because of all the resistance. Just remember, God's plans, great plans, will be greatly opposed, but it's still worth it. God knows the future, and he's guiding it. So he goes on, he says, seven plus 62 or 69 sevens of years, which equals 483 years after that decree, Messiah will come. So pay attention, exact dates, right? Then Messiah will be killed and left with nothing, verse 26. Then a ruler will come who will destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And note, a second time, because it's been destroyed the first time, but it hadn't even been rebuilt when Daniel's getting this prophecy. And then it says, the last seven years, the end will come like a flood. All right, so let's go back. So the starting countdown is from the issue of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. The priest Ezra actually puts it in an Old Testament book by his name, the exact date and time. Take a look. Uh, Ezra 7. Ezra came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So there's the time. Seventh year of Artaxerxes. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra, and he copies it. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you may go and do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. And their enemies say this began the the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, what's fascinating is the book of Ezra is written in Hebrew, and yet this is actually in Aramaic. Ezra literally copied the Aramaic, the Persian language of the day, of the exact decree that Artaxerxes made. Now, Encyclopedia Britannica tells us when Artaxerxes started ruling. It was 465 BC. Note, this is real history. And God already told us, this is how you'll know I'm real. So the decree is in the seventh year. So 465, he starts ruling. Remember BC, you got to subtract. So seven years later, it's 458 BC. So take a look at a chart I've tried to put together. This is real history. So the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem happened in 458 in Arxerxes. The angel said there'll be seven sevens plus 62 sevens or 49 plus 434 years, that's 483 years. You subtract that from the decree. Don't you love church math? It just (laughs) geeks me out. It gets my engineer going. All right, so follow though. 458 is the decree of Artaxerxes. 483 years later is 25 AD. But remember, there's no year zero between 1 BC and 1 AD. So 26 AD is when Messiah will come. 
pretty amazing because that's when Jesus began his ministry. In 30 AD, he was killed. Messiah comes, 26, 27 AD, is cut off, is killed. And then in 70 AD, the Roman uh, general Titus destroys the temple and Jerusalem a second time. Now think about this. Who but God could know what actually happens in history? And friends, this is why I left my engineering career. Because I'm like, why don't people know this? Why isn't anybody telling anybody? Well, because God's will and ways are resisted on this earth. And, and we've got to push forward in helping people understand because God is for you. He's not against you. He knows your future. It's to prosper you, not to harm you. So will you trust God with your whole future? That's the last question I want to ask. You know, if God really is proving that he knows real history, we can trust him. So what about the last? That's, so that's seven sevens or 49 years and then the 62 sevens and then Messiah comes. But then there's one last seven. Where does that come in? Let's take a look. It goes on and says, the people of the ruler will come and destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 AD. And by the way, the temple has still not been rebuilt. And then it says, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Desolations have been decreed. He, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven-year period. In the middle of that seven-year period, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, notice the temple was destroyed a few verses earlier. Now it's there again. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on. This last seven-year period is the time often known as the time of the Antichrist. Okay, it's the time in Daniel, it's the seven-year period in the book of Revelation. Now, to understand prophecy, you have to understand something. It's never clear looking forward. That's not the purpose of it. Jesus said, no one knows the dates or the times looking ahead except God. But looking back, it makes it clear that God's in control. But you're seeing kind of like mountain peaks of history. And what you don't understand is that many times there are years millennia even of valleys that are not being shown so what we have right here is in 70 AD the temple's destroyed and then from 70 AD to 1948 Israel doesn't exist there is no nation of Israel we studied that last week and Jesus foretold this in Luke 21 he said when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies you'll know its desolation is near they'll fall by the sword and they'll and you will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, what we looked at last week that's amazing is 1948, Israel became a nation again overnight, just like Isaiah foretold. So does that mean we're in the end times? I have no idea, and you don't either. <laughs> and it's not even good to speculate. But we know the temple has not been rebuilt yet. And at some point in the future, the Jewish people come back into play for seven years. But first, the temple has to be rebuilt. Why hadn't it been rebuilt? One reason. Second most holy shrine uh, for Islam is on the very location where the temple once was. So here's the thing. It doesn't really matter when the end is. 
What matters is do you trust God with your future? Do you trust his Messiah, Jesus? He, he put evidence throughout history of what he was going to do and why he did it and when he did it, and you can study it. Go, go. I, I have yet to find somebody to show me where is this wrong? Where am I missing something? But the more important question still is personal. He created you. He holds his future in your hands. You don't know the future. So why try to play God? Why not trust the God who says, my plan is to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. So as we sing this song, I want you to just think about what are my plans to get me the most important things of life, like love and security and peace and blessing and joy and those things. And then I want you to think, if God is promising this in those areas, why wouldn't you trust him with your future? And just tell him as we do this little spiritual exercise.